Welcome to the Two Lions Podcast. Real talk about real life as a startup CEO, including all the challenges and wisdom gained along the way. CEOs are slammed, so high-quality content from the trenches is rare. We hope to provide some of the value from classic works of folks like Paul Graham, Peter Thiel, Ben Horwitz, and Elad Gill. So let's go. Welcome to the Two Lions Podcast. All right, so... Ziv, I think you have a really cool background in physics and optics and in building hardware startups. You know, you've built multiple of them and you've sold one to Apple and worked at Apple for a while. So you have a really, really cool background. Do you want to just give a quick introduction of yourself before we dive in? Yeah, sure. My background is optical engineering. That's what I studied in uh, university. I, I started doing um, um, mechanical engineering and physics in uh, Technion, one of the universities in uh, Israel. And then on the first day of university, the nice professor came in, said, uh, we're opening a new uh, optics department, something like that. Uh, anybody that wants to join have to you know, fill in your name or something. And, and he gave a really nice pitch, you know, like he totally sold it to me and then some other folks also. So I did that and uh, it was smart. It was really interesting education, you know, besides the usual physics stuff. There was lots of uh, optics related courses, so I liked it. So I kept going with that and finished uh, that degree. Then after that and after, actually during university, I took a job at a big defense company, you know, one of those large companies that makes uh, military stuff, missile, whatever, surveillance systems, and worked there on, on optics and, you know, infrared optics, uh, visible optics, different types of detection systems. And then a few years after I, I left that job and I wanted to kind of uh, do something uh, by myself, it wasn't yet a startup. So the company was called Opera. It was more of a consulting company. Basically started just doing optical engineering consulting, took a project or two, but quickly the customers at times, different companies, different applications, they were asking, you know, can you also do the mechanics? Can you do the software for me? Can you do the electronics, blah, blah, blah. So basically they wanted to kind of ownership of a, of a system. Uh, so I ended up hiring some people for, for different like, disciplines, like mechanical engineer, algorithm person, software person. And we did that for, I think maybe two years, three years. And, um, over those three years, it's, it's also when the smartphone kind of picked up. So, you know, we had the dumb phone and then transitioning to smartphone. Mm-hmm. So obviously one of the things that were, was a big thing on or started to be a big thing on smartphone was the camera. Uh, but there was also at the time, like discussions about like the small projectors and like Pico projectors are both embedded in phones and other optical things. The only thing that actually stuck was the camera for obvious reasons. But anyways, uh, so some of the projects that I was involved doing consulting work were related to actual camera products for smartphones. Um, Wait, can I just say one thing? Because I was, I used to be obsessed with this when I was a kid. <laughs> Are you saying that there was also some discussions about like projector projectors from like phones, like miniaturized, like, cause I've always, I've always, uh, been fascinated by the idea that maybe one day the phone would actually, you could set it down and it would like project like holographic imagery and stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm that's, not sure how practical it is, but it's so fucking cool. <laughs> right? it, it's cool. So, so like the thinking behind it at the time made a lot more sense. It still does make sense, but it's more niche. Now you could say, okay, I have my phone. I'm 
like I need a wall or I need some screen. But at the time, remember the, the screens of the phones were like this. Right. They're like yeah. one side. Totally, so totally. Having big real estate was a big thing. It's be, before, you know, Apple's the one that started with the big screens. Right. Before that, all the Nokia phones, they had a tiny to screen. Yeah, so, totally. They were small. Yeah. So, like the push for having projectors. There were a few startups here in the US and Europe that are doing these, uh, they call them Beco projectors, like really small projector engines. They were, they, okay. I think there's some better now. Uh, you, you can get them better, but it, it, it ended up being an accessory, not part of the phone. Mm. I think it's just the use case is too limited. Like you need a dark room, you need a screen, you need to yeah, put it on the thing. You can't move it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it didn't become mainstream, but it was still interesting technology. I was involved in some of these projects. Oh, cool. But but mostly it was around smartphone cameras. And at the time, the big player was Nokia and Samsung. They were like the, the leaders in, and Motorola also smartphone photography. So I was involved in some of the, these different projects. Um, there's lots of multi-company efforts, you know, making it better. This was even before these cameras had autofocus. So there was attempts to make an extended depth of field. So you don't need autofocus. It was called Edo. Mm -hmm. uh, worked on some of these projects and became very kind of familiar with the industry. And then at some stage, I thought kind of to myself, you know, if this is going to be a big thing and it, it looked like it is. You know, smartphone photography, it was crappy at the time, but it was clear that it's going to get better and better. Why limit yourself to one camera? Like, let's see what we can do with two cameras, three cameras, four cameras. So I started uh, kind of exploring that idea of using multiple cameras. Like, what do you gain by using multiple cameras? How do you build it? What new features does it enable? And this is how Lynx, my, my previous startup, was ba basically born. So mm. we didn't really have to raise money at the beginning because I had like, you know, I had a few engineers working on the other projects. So it was kind of, there was also revenue coming in. So doing the first, let's say experiments, building prototypes, managed to do it without any uh, partners or investors. And then after building some, some things, which looked really promising in terms of the results, so, okay, we need to take this further and then start partnering with companies that actually do manufacturing of, of these things that at scale. And one of them actually became like an investor. So they invested in us and yeah, we kind of became a normal startup if you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, 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 so that's how it, it started. Then, um, that startup links imaging, we were focused on smartphone, although we did smartphone photography, although we did have some interesting stuff going on in automotive, medic manifold application, but it was kind of clear to everyone that smartphone is the big, let's say customer for multi-camera. It's like the biggest bag for the buck. So we focused on that. We built mm -hmm. prototypes, started talking to smartphone manufacturers, you know, getting their interests and um, it's in different stages also for investments and projects and mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And uh, it was really interesting. We had a cool project with, um, with Google at the time. So they acquired Motorola and, you know, that was their hardware division, basically. Yeah. Motorola had lots of, you know, history and handsets. Uh, we, we so, signed on track with them. Sorry. Just, I just want to make sure before you go on. Um, th so this company was fundamentally about like multi-camera. Like if you have multiple lenses on one phone, what can you do with it? Exactly. Like okay. what, what can you do? What do you gain in terms of image quality, but also what new features, like I'll tell you about the portrait mode, but that's like one of the, so was your, so camera. was your, was your, um, idea 
So like the product was actually like some, basically some software and a grouping of lenses or what was the what the product? I just want to make sure we get really precise yeah. for those of us who are like less schooled about yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That, that's a good point. So, you know, when I say multiple cameras and you just put them in the phone, it sounds simple, but, you know, some companies spend billions of dollars on making that happen. So uh, it, it is, it does mean taking multiple cameras and putting them in the back of the phone. But it's not the same. So, so making a phone with two cameras is not twice as complicated as making one with one. It's actually more because then once you have two cameras, you need to align them one res with respect to the other. And that alignment is super accurate. It needs to be like, you know, micron level uh, accuracy. Otherwise, you cannot get depth from them. And, 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 I, okay. and I also want you to just unpack as we're doing this, like, when we say multiple cameras, do we mean multiple camera lenses? And then what are these multiple cameras represented by actually different underlying hardware or just different software? Or I just want to make sure we get this really precise because yeah. it's so important about how this whole ecosystem has evolved and you've yeah. it and many of us no, are appearing. No, no, right. Let's, let's start with a little bit of a like ter terpenology here. Okay? Yeah. So, so when I say camera, when somebody says camera, the, the intention is uh, a camera is like a, some box, which is, you know, plastic, metal, whatever. Inside of that box, you have a sensor, you know, CMOS sensor, which transfer, uh, translates light into computer signal. And you have a lens, which takes the light from the scene, whatever you want to take a picture of and throws that light on the sensor, mm. right? So that, that, that's what you would call a camera, right? And then when you have two cameras in a phone or three cameras or, or whatever, it means you have that times two or times three. So you have two sensors, two lenses, two lens holders. That holder typically also has the autofocus mechanism in it. Today, mm. they also have the optical image stabilization, which is, you know, some, some more mechanical part. So but they're the, hardware. The, okay. Okay. Water, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's basically and, like you have a lens and sitting behind the, underneath the lens inside my camera here. There's yeah. a different piece of heart, like a, basically a compositional bundle of hardware underneath each one. For each one, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it so is prim different. primary sensor and some stabilizers and other shit around. Exactly, it, yeah. And autofocus yeah. and stuff, okay. Yeah, and, and, and that's the hardware side, right? Yes. So building it is one thing. I'm not saying it's easy, but you build it, it's there. Yeah. And there's a second step of after you build it, you calibrate it. it means that for, for each device, so you have to measure it and because you never get it accurate to a level of micron, but you can measure it to that level and then save that measurement, you know, for future calculations, whatever you want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a calibration phase. And then after you, you calibrate, there's a software and that's, you know, kind of the, the, the sky's the limit there. You can do image fusion, you can do uh, image stacking, like take a bunch of images from each camera for all of them, stack it together with the fusion algorithm. And then once you have two cameras, you can also do things mm -hmm. that you, you can calculate depth by stereo, you know, like, like we have two eyes, we see depth, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. same idea, the, the, the minute you have two or more cameras, you can see depth, you can calculate depth. And once you have a depth map, for, for most users, the depth map by itself is not interesting. But once you have that depth map, you can do interesting things like blur the background, right? That, that's mm -hmm. what's called portrait mode mm -hmm. on, on uh, iPhone and other devices. You can also darken the background, you know, like this black background, white background effect mm -hmm. that you have in, under portrait lighting and, and iPhone. Right. 
Uh, different phones give it different names, but it exists also on other. Is portrait devices. mode only blurring the background, or is it also doing some sort of enhancement uh, or like uh, super resolution kind of stuff on the foreground, like on the on the face or whatever the subject is of it? Yeah, so, so it is doing a bunch of stuff. You can call them super resolution. I mean, it's more a uh, image fusion. Also, kind of as years pass, there's more and more uh, horsepower thrown at the image. Right. Uh, it's but it's also done at the normal images, so it's not directly related to the portrait mode. It's just smartphone cameras have lots of stuff going on. Totally. I'm imagining yeah. like there's sort of a hardware component to the camera and then sort of a software component exactly. more and more, right? That can exactly. Like and that, you know, today, basically the phones apply whatever they can. Yeah. And after the capturing, uh, whatever they can on the images to make them look better. Yeah. Um, but portrait mode is a specific thing where you also use the depth information to blur mm -hmm. the background. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So it's like another layer. Of, it, it's not instead. It's another layer of uh, yeah. stuff you do to the image. And it gives it that, you know, 3D look, feel, professional camera. That that was the whole idea behind it. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense because, you know, we, we as humans, when you look at a person standing in front of you, um, it's kind of hard to describe it, but you also see the person kind of popping out of the background uh, blurry. The eye is a little yes. bit more complicated, but you can try. Just look at a person. You'll right. notice the background is not too uh, noticeable. And of course, professional cameras, which we kind of, uh, you know, still today, like you open a newspaper, website, whatever, they use professional cameras. So our eyes are kind of calibrated to seeing those images and knowing, right. oh, that's a good image. We, we can still right. tell the difference, even without describing why, between smartphone images and professional cameras. So, right. so Fortune Mode is kind of an attempt to, to bridge that gap, but it works when the image is relatively small. You view it on your smartphone. Mm -hmm. It looks cool. Once you start to zoom in, you'll, you will see some differences, but it's still, it's a fun feature to have. And lots of people use it. I, you know, I just see people posting pictures on you know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Lots of people use to, like portrait mode by, even by default almost. Right. Which for me is fun. It's fun to see, you know. Yeah. Okay, so I want I, I thank you for the dive, and I want to get back to your timeline. So it's basically so it's basically studying, you know, physics and optical engineering, getting into you know getting pulled into the practical applications in the field, which was a bunch of different stuff, and then going into uh, camera and and that was Opera was kind of this like consulting shop that you did after school you mentioned right, and then links you start getting into this all this multi camera stuff. Now, then I missed. It, it wasn't acquired by Apple. It was acquired by Motorola or something. No, no, no. Then he went to Apple or sorry, I got no, confused there. No, no, we were acquired by Apple, but that was in oh. 2015. Before that, 2012, around that time, 2012, 2013, we had a project, um, like a contract, not not an acquisition. Just a, uh, you just had a deal with Motorola. Deal, yeah, 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 exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. so we worked with them. It was actually Google because it was after the acquisition. So right. the people worked with Google. That really interesting project. It didn't come out to be a like an actual you know ship product. It might might have been, but kind of when we started kind of advancing in the project, they actually sold the mobile division, which was called Motorola. They sold it to Lenovo. Right. So now the Motorola is part of Lenovo, right? Yeah, I was gonna say thanks to God that you didn't end up over there because it seems like it was kind of a clusterfuck, wasn't it? The whole Google Motorola, like I, I don't yeah. know. So I, you know, I don't know the in the you know the the behind the stage what what went on, but yeah, it seemed like I mean they bought them for what um, I don't remember the numbers, but some some end 
and billions of dollars and, and they it like a year later for less than half. So I remember, yeah. And, and but it seemed it seemed also like the whole like it, it was just like really screwed up, like like nothing really manifested. So it's I think it was probably like a some type of culture clash, you know, Google being a pure software totally. company. Yeah, yeah. We integrate a pure hardware company. But Motorola um, hasn't been shipping anything cool is the point, right? At the end of the day, or they have, I don't know. Yeah, no, at, at the time, Motorola was, um, I'm trying to remember. So Motorola was really big at some stage, right? It was early days. Smartphone. Yeah. I think at that time, they're already kind of uh, uh, struggling because it's already, yeah. you know, after the rise of Apple. Totally. In- Song. So Nokia and Motorola were kind of pushed, you know, behind right. this. Uh, I think I, again, just is my guess that Google thought when they acquired them and they owned the, you know, the equus, the software ecosystem, that together it would be some amazing product and they'll be able right. to, you know, outrun Apple. But it didn't. Yeah. Wait. I think they basically were like, you know, here's what's happening to the hardware ecosystem. These guys are getting crappy. Like we're going to buy it and Googleify it. And then all of a sudden it's going to be awesome. And then they realize like, fuck, we can't actually turn around this gnarly hardware company. Like it's kind of in decline. We basically bought like Kodak or whatever. Right. And it's like, what do we do? And they, they didn't want to do a deal with Lady Gaga or whatever, like Kodak did. They kind of realized they should just divest themselves of the asset. I guess. Yeah. Something like that. That could could, make sense. I I mean, because I remember at the time people, they thought they were going to do all, like you're saying, the strategic full stack Android stuff. And I think they just realized like they couldn't really do it. And it was going to be too difficult to take whatever was happening at Motorola and somehow like turn it around while also fusing it with what they were doing with Android, which would be, would have been really difficult to do so i don't know anyways so then so you end up doing this this stuff with them getting acquired by apple what was the acquisition like and were you happy with how you it sounds like you kind of merged in and end up doing the same kind of stuff at apple really right yeah so in the beginning of uh, 2015 the acquisition went through you know after the usual negotiations and stuff Mm -hmm. besides the money aspect of the deal that apple required that me and the other engineers in the company move we're in israel at the time they required that we move here to work at the headquarters they didn't already have a big office in israel yeah but because we were camera and cameras kind of strategic to for sure it's probably a little bit different today but at the time that was the and 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 i would do the same if i was apple i would also that Totally. Uh, so, so we moved here and um, integrated into the camera organization. It was very smooth in the sense that, you know, Apple is, you know, Apple's like a machine, hardware, software, everything is executed well, but also on the M&A side of things and the people, you know, when you move people with families and kids and all that, there's challenges and, you know, people need help, it's a new country, you know, new mm-hmm. culture. So Apple is like a machine also on that and they yeah. help us like, you know, super professionally, yeah, uh, anything totally. you want, you need information, you need help with that, with that. So that, that was really uh, nice. We got felt, and then not, I'm just not just talking about me, also the other engineers in the company, I yeah, totally. uh, felt that, you know, somebody's taking care of us, we're not yeah. like here, move and find yourself. Yeah. So that was nice. And then on the more like uh, word side, the actual integration of, of uh, the team inside of Apple. That was also smooth. We, um, we were part of the software organization, although specifically my team had lots of work and interaction with the hardware group, which is a completely different organization inside Apple. Hmm. 
but it's fine. You, you work together. We, so we were part of software. Um, and I, I guess it just, it was like that because we were most of the like 90%, 80% of the time was working on software feature, you know, like portrait mode, image fusion. There was some really, you know, software for calibrating cameras, which is more on the hardware side, but mm -hmm. we, we worked with, you know, the hardware people and shared all the knowledge that we kind of gathered uh, during the startup time. So I would say it was super smooth. I, we didn't know exactly, you know, we worked on, we had this portrait mode. We didn't call it portrait mode or image fusion. We had a name for it, uh, before joining Apple, we didn't know that by, uh, like 18 months later, it would actually be a feature on the iPhone. Like mm -hmm. if I had to guess, I would probably, uh, would tell you three years at the time, it would mm -hmm. take at least three years, mm -hmm. but it w actually went much faster than, uh, than what I would have guessed, which is nice then. So the acquisition went through in uh, early 2015 and by September 16, it was already, the portrait was already launched on iPhone 7 Plus, which was the first iPhone to have multiple cameras in the back, but it had two. Uh, the yeah. iPhone still had one camera. So that was super exciting. You know, I went to the launch event and you, you see something that, you know, you, you played with in those startup like people right. warehouse and suddenly it's a feature on an iPhone. And you guys were really, I'm, I'm assuming you guys were cranking pretty hard during those like 18 months or whatever, right? Must've been we, a big story. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we, we were totally. So it was a lot of work because it's not, you know, we had it kind of working at the startup, that feature, but we had it on completely different hardware and, right. you know, and also not at, you know, at scale, you know, Apple, whatever they do, they do it as good as possible. They don't right. like half jobs. No. So it had to be kind of robust enough that it yeah. doesn't like work 80% of the time. It needs to work, you know, 98% yeah. of the time. Right. It's totally. a big, big difference going from 80 to 98%. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we work hard, but the good thing, it's not, we didn't stay just, you know, my little startup team. Now we joined forces with, with a huge, you know, lots of right. uh, really, really good engineers and you know, scientists, yeah. whatever, lab, uh, hardware people, software people. So it's like, you have all these people all working together with the same goals, like launching yeah. this on time, making it good. And Apple's really good, good at that. You know, it's yeah. like a um, very organized company for, for, yeah. product. it knows it's going to launch. So that, totally. that went really yeah, they really aren't fucking around. Like I have a lot of very close friends that have worked there for a long time. And like, when it comes to their core products, they're, they're the best in my opinion. I think it's the best managed company in the technology world. Um, well, just, I, I would agree, you know, not that I worked at other companies, but just, you know, looking around what other companies are doing and looking at actual products that are shipping yeah. and then yeah. they're like half baked yeah. and you, you compare it then. Yeah. Apple's totally, they, so Apple doesn't ship random stuff. They, no, they no. sit and think, do we yeah. really want to ship this? And once yeah. they decide that they want to ship it, they do it properly and then do people really actually good work and yeah. don't just, oh, cool features and then put it in the drawer for it. Right. And the other thing that they do, which I like, is they move fat, like really fast, right? It's like either, either your thing's not going to happen, right? Or you start going a little bit slow and it gets killed, which is not that often, but sometimes, you know, or you're going to go super fast and it's really going to ship, you know? And like they, they work their butts off, but like you said, they take care of people, you know, financially and otherwise too. Like, yeah, you're going to work hard. You're going to work some long hours, especially when you're, heading towards release deadlines that you need to nail. Yeah. yeah there were, you know, there was, there was a uh, like long days, a few nights, but I wouldn't, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just because, you know, you come from a startup and you're used to working yeah, a lot totally, of hours. Totally. Yeah. But 
yeah, I didn't feel like that this was like too stressful or like the amount of work it felt yeah. totally normal for me. Yeah. I don't think people that are attached to whatever they're doing, like the actual feature software, yeah. they want to do it. You don't have to tell them work late today. Right. They know we need to, they want to yeah. and do it. They want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would often, cause you know, I, I had still have, but I had little kids. I would never stay like really late at the office, just go home, yeah. you know, have dinner. And then, you know, you open your computer later when kids are asleep, you have a few good hours. Yeah. Uh, focus. I, I did work until 3 a.m. I want to tell you, I, I didn't uh, yeah. quite a few times, but it, yeah. it, it was all from, you know, choice. You could know, say, oh, it's good enough. Yeah. I'll keep going tomorrow. I think they managed to somehow like create, like recreate a startup culture after like Steve came back. They somehow managed to like recreate that and like maintain it throughout. Cause I have friends that have worked on like, for example, the MacBooks from like the very first MacBook on and are still there and like talking to them about it, like it sounded a lot like a startup, you know, like kind of throughout, like they would create these teams around particular products and they almost function. Yeah. Like working hours and intensity wise and like the feeling that their asses are on the line and everything like at the level of a startup, it's crazy. And I've never seen that in any other, you know, like of these big organizations really. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe in the old school, like in the ads team inside Google, like they're not messing around either. That's a pretty small team that like generates all the money that everybody else is always rolling the dice with. And like what, what, from what I saw from inside that team that they were like really like that as well. Like it was really, really serious. Um, so yeah, but they've, they've, they've managed to pull it off. So what? What else like did you learn from the experience at Apple? Because I mean, I think that must have been a great informative experience for you also like as a leader and stuff like there must be a lot you're taking on now from that time at Apple. That's kind of that you've sort of stolen from from what was awesome about it. Yeah, totally. I think that's a, a good question. So, you know, as, as someone coming from a startup and I'm sure other startup people feel the same thing, you just want to make things work. You know, like everything's an MVP, your whole life, your whole day is an MVP, right? right? Yeah. Whether it's an email, whether it's a, like a piece of code, a piece of hardware, like you want to do the minimum that actually works and gets you, gets you to the next step. Hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're at Apple, you realize that everything you do in mind, like you write a piece of code on the computer, that thing is going to be in like a hundred million people's hand in like two months from now. Right. So you have to be kind of more careful or think about everything you're doing that it's not a temporary thing like whatever you do yeah you can fix the code that's fine we, right you're allowed to make mistakes but you're actually building products you're not playing around you're not yeah it's not a lab uh, so i think that kind of um changes your state of mind it also has negative effects of course because if you do everything thoroughly you know you're the enemy of yourself you slow yourself down so right. so what I learned inside Apple is that you can kind of, and of course, uh, uh, the person, you, you can do both. You can do things properly, but also kind of be agile, you know, move fast. So be a startup, but also be an Apple at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's going to be helpful. I, I can definitely see it help being helpful now. So like when we have to make some, even a little, you know, tiny decision about some or some code. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't just think, okay, this code needs to do A, let's just make it do A. You're also thinking, okay, it needs to do A, but maybe next month, I think we're going to have to make it also do B. Let's mm -hmm. do it in a way that it's already 
going to work fine with A and B. Yeah. It, it's kind of thinking about the uh, future consequences of things right. a little bit more, a little deeper than you would if you're, you know, just a startup. More like and I think that's something difficult to, to, that people at Apple have to do. Just the reality right. is like that, you know? right? So like a little bit more thinking of like clever abstractions than like going for yeah. the dirt, for the dirty hack or whatever that will like work for a but like you know you're gonna have to redo it if you need to do anything else and you're just saying well i'm probably gonna have to do something else anyway so i'm gonna try to at least think about some abstraction now yeah that's a good way of engineering stuff in general i think we don't do that enough yeah totally so i mean it's i think it serves someone whether they're you know somebody learned at apple that they go to a startup or they go to another big company I think you only gain from that. There's like literally no yeah. downside. If, if you're able to kind of, uh, you know, still do things fast and not slow yourself down because of doing things too thoroughly. Yes. I think that's the key is like, there's a balance here. And this is important. I think when you're building startups, like it's actually very important because you're talking about what matters is not actually speed today or this week. What matters is speed on the timeline that matters for you to like actually ship shit. And that's actually the medium term pretty much always. And a lot of people really screw this up in engineering because they think, well, move fast and break things, do the hack. And then I'm going to like change it again, you know, when I need to, because maybe nobody will even use this thing. And it's like, yeah, kind of, but probably you're going to be testing a bunch of iterations of different ideas, you know, in sequence and many in parallel. And you're, you don't need to build the cathedral and go way to the other side of the gradient, but the always doing the dirty hack and not testing it enough and like not really thinking through abstractions and stuff just you're working against yourself in the sense that now you try to add a thing it's going to take way longer in fact it might even take longer than 2x because you might be unrolling your crappy thing from the previous step um and i've actually seen this happen a lot in startups a lot where you end up you know losing a lot of time on the order of like a quarter because you did something really crappy you know, in one particular week or a, or a particular two week sprint or whatever. And I think it's important that people try to think this way because it's, it's a really material thing, I think, in terms of engineering velocity. It, it is. Yeah. And I think at, you know, startups, it's easy to forget that, that, you know, yeah, you are a startup, but you're aiming not to be at some stage. Right. At mine, right? Yeah. And you don't have to build out this gnarly cathedral and like create an open source framework or something. Like you don't have to do that, right? Like you can totally find a reasonable middle ground. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and so I think that's actually a very important like lesson. Um, what else? Anything else like leadership wise or management culture wise or anything that you think is in- interesting and noteworthy from the time at Apple? Um, so, you know, I don't have like lots of references. I, you know, it's a big company. There's politics and, you know, as, as manager, you have to deal yeah. with manager stuff. But, you know, I, my impression was that it's, it, they, Apple is aware of that. They're trying to minimize it. So basically cut the bullshit into mm. As, as small as possible, like minimize the amount of bullshit time that people have to spend on, on manager stuff that's not productive. There's still things, you know, you have to do as a manager, right? You have to give feedback to, to, to your team. You have to talk to other managers, make decisions together with other people, you know, um, uh, make sure things. So, you know, you built like in our case, we built some features for the phone. You need to make sure they don't interfere with other stuff. They don't, you know, 
make the phone go too hot or whatever. There's, there's lots of like cross-functional activity that needs to be done. Um, and, and that's kind of, I would say it's kind of, um, part of managing like technical managing of projects like that, but, um, it's, it's inevitable. You have to do it. Like if you want to ship stuff properly, you have to do it properly. Otherwise, you know, things work, but they fail really quickly when, you know, but when you're slightly out of your comfort zone or, you know, you build a feature for a camera and it works great, but then somebody uses it in the snow. Oh, it doesn't work with white, you know, when the background's white, stuff like that. So you have to kind of test everything really, uh, thoroughly and think about it that, you know, again, you're not a startup. People are not going to use it in your lab. People can use it all over the world, right? In the desert, the North Pole, whatever, on flights, underwater, stuff like that. So it, it's just, uh, um, crazy. It's crazy, but I think it's, it's a good experience. Like I think managers at Apple, um, I would say, you know, if they're like being managers, they have fun. Yeah. It's a good point though. Like people are going to use it on the North fucking pole. Like not very many people can say that their product is going to be used like literally everywhere in the world, but it's true. Like wherever people are at, if they've got an iPhone, they're going to be taking pictures with it. So you know, uh, it's coming up to that time of year. So Santa needs to keep an eye out up there on the North Pole, yeah. right? Cause you don't want Santa having the yeah. autophobus stuck because yeah, to- of the outside, right? Totally, totally. <laughs> wow. That's, that's gnarly. Yeah. That's kind of mind blowing, but it's so true in Antarctica or whatever, right? People have iPhones, they're taking pictures. Um, okay. So you, so you're there, you build all, you build this stuff into the, into the camera or into the iPhone rather. Um, that's where you meet Tom, right? And then what kind of motivated you guys to pull the ripcord and, and parachute out of there to do glass? So, yeah. So actually the order of things, so Tom actually left before me. Oh, uh, okay. he, he moved for some other startup, but we stayed in Dutch, you know, yeah. most of me as, as friends, not professional Dutch. Um, we, we worked closely when he was at Apple for a few years. And then when he left, we stayed in touch. Gotcha. Um, I left at the end of 2019. Wow. Um, I knew I wanted to work on something, you know, of my own, something big, something new and something that's kind of, uh, more, more than one or two or three years out. So yes. and those, those are things that are really hard to push inside big companies, including Apple. Yeah. Um, or maybe especially Apple because they're, you know, they have products that need to ship next year. Yes. Totally. There's a lot of efforts and, and focus going into that. So when you come up with an idea, even if it's an amazing idea, you say, oh, it's going to take, you know, four or five years to mature this. Um, I'm sure they'll, they'll support you, but it's not going to get the attention and priority that it would that, like any, nothing close to the like shipping, uh, uh, you know, project. So it's low priority and, you know, I didn't want to have some interesting project that everybody, or let's say the management, high management, uh, sees that low priority. I want it to be like the highest priority. So to do it, right. you need to have a startup that's dedicated for that thing that you're building. Right. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to, to build. I knew it would be related to imaging. I actually had some ideas related to medical stuff, but started exploring them after I left Apple, I took a few weeks off, started exploring some ideas and somehow got drawn back to the camera, the smartphone camera, um, issue. Like how do you make it better, but not a little bit better, like a ton better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I was onto some direction did some experiments in, in my garage, at my house. Um, and I thought, okay, this could work. It involves lots of AI. So I said, okay, I'm going to call Tom 
Tom, Tom's a like software algorithm guy, but his focus in the last few years was, was purely on neural networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I called them, we met, you know, for a few hours, rented this little room in the Palo Alto library with the whiteboard, mm-hmm. <laughs> started doing some math and, and calculations. And, and then we ended up saying, okay, this, this can work. Like there's nothing that's, um, there, there's no bottleneck. There's nothing that's like a wall here. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's complicated, but we think it's doable and we think it deserves, you know, setting up the proper company and focusing on that. So he left his, the startup that he was at, at the time, um, and, and joined me. And then we started at last, you know, we did a little pre-seed round, uh, from some investors in the East coast, rented an office and then started kind of working on that. Moved out of your garage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're really an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. You were starting out of the fucking garage every single fucking time. That's pretty hardcore. That's awesome. It's um, not. Yeah, it's not bad. You know, no, I, you, no, no. you need a home. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like having a workshop and especially when you're playing with hardware stuff, that's like super cool, right? Um, just get your morning coffee and you walk out and okay. you're there playing around with stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, totally. So what was the first like? prototyping stuff like for glass like what did you have going on out there in the garage and what and what was the conversation like with tom so i want to get a feeling of this like founding level of tech like what were you fundamentally exploring yeah so the the like the fundamental thing we're doing at glass um and i'm kind of on purpose you know zooming out looking at it from space so we're saying and this is kind of philosophical almost Saying when you build a camera, you only care about what comes out at the end, right? Because you as a mm-hmm. user, you don't see what we have in intermediate places, right? Yeah. And uh, so, so you, you want the best output out of that camera. And output's probably a photo, but can also be other things. So you want the best photo that will come out of it. You don't care what happens inside, right? As a user, you really don't care. You don't see it. Um, and the assumption until now or until recent is that if you want to get the best photo out of a camera, you need to have the best sensor, the best lens, the best housing that holds everything together, mm-hmm. the best autofocus, the best software, you know, processing, mm-hmm. we talked mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. resolution, image fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our philosophy is actually different is saying, okay, you don't need to have the best of all these, you know, ABCD blocks, whether they're hardware or software, you just need them to be specific ABCD blocks that create like a, the best possible output. Hmm. That that's on a philosophical level in, um, what really makes a change in taking that philosophy and making it like a product or, you know, we have, we don't have a product yet, but we're getting close to it. We have samples that work, uh, making it a, uh, um, like a concrete solution, um, has been AI. So, you know, AI, um, sounds good. It's really cool. Lots of people say AI about everything, you know. When you see these iPhone or Samsung or Google launches, they say AI, everything is AI, right? Mm-hmm. Probably exaggerating a little bit, but there is, uh, AI, uh, going into lots of stuff these days. Um, and people are using it, including Apple, Google, Samsung, all these books, they're using it in kind of very sealed way. So they build the best camera they can having the best lens and best sensor they can. They take the output of that camera and then they apply a bunch of ABCD algorithms to it on their pieces. And and some of these blocks, they say, okay, let's replace it with neural network, which is, you know, a form of AI. And yeah. it's going to be better than the non AI version. Okay, fine. They do it. Our, our philosophy is saying, you know, you have that neural network, you can design the whole hardware difference. You don't need to have the best sensor 
and the best lens in order to get the best output, right? Right. Because that, that you can have a combination of things that is, seem suboptimal, like each component is yeah. kind of shitty. But when you put them together, they're better than having just. Yeah, that's what I was. I was going to ask that earlier when you were explaining about the whole stack, how I was going to suggest that with or or kind of ask, you know, with, with the advances in AI, especially with the neural nets getting better and better with vision and so many different use cases in vision. Are you foreseeing like basically more of that stack just keeps moving into the software and like kind of dumbing down what's required from the the glass and the and the little sensor and the bundle around the sensor that's basically what you're saying you can you can start dumbing it down making it cheaper more commodity parts and then so, yes and no so i i think um dumbing it down but not necessarily for the sake of making it cheaper oh. and that kind of brings up the you know when, when i had uh, the, your your previous question like what how the discussion go on you know when, yeah when me and tom did this initial brainstorming so so yeah, you, you can take it totally to what you say. You can take it and say, okay, I'm going to make the lens cheaper, use less components inside, less accurate, and I'm going to fix it with software. I think that's like the, say, easy path forward. We we said, let's do something else. Let's see if we build the lens differently, can we improve other parameters of imaging, like like mm -hmm. resolution, uh, noise, stuff like that. Like, what can we improve? Mm -hmm. Not by making the lens cheaper because smartphones are expensive. They have a lot of budget. We'll talk about it. We can talk about it after that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of budget for the actual camera. So making it cheaper. Yeah, everybody would love the cheaper, you know, to save a few bucks on the, the camera. But I think currently, like the, the way the smartphone industry is, and you can see all the launch event, the yeah. quality of the camera is the most important thing. They're looking for better. Yeah, they're looking for better more so than cheaper. Exactly. If you can, if you can do better, that's, that's exactly the exactly. Right so idea. that that's what we ask. Like, how do we build a camera, knowing we have this AI that we can throw at it later, that's mm -hmm. gonna make the camera much better in terms of resolution and, and you know signal to noise, like noise quality or low light performance. Yeah. Um, and and then we concluded, okay, the only way to do it for smartphones, and it's a different solution for different products. Although we're focused on smartphone, you can use it in other products. Uh, the only way to do it properly for a smartphone is to use a bigger sensor. When you use a bigger sensor, you're able to capture more, a lot more light. And then also when you have a lot more light and better SNR, which is signal to noise right here, or noise becomes less of an issue. And you can also, it, it's kind of feeding itself. You can throw at it more aggressive neural networks. So it's like, a, you know, you use neural networks to change the lens, but the lens also allows you to use more aggressive neural networks. So it's like a, you know, kind of a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And there's an optimal, of course, you, you don't want to go too crazy and you don't want to have a camera that costs, you know, a million bucks inside a smartphone. Right. Nobody's going to buy it. Right. Um, but, but when you still play, you know, with dollar amounts, which is kind of where, where, where they are like making it a little bit more expensive mm -hmm. or cheaper, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. If you can, uh, extract better quality from these cameras, which is what we're doing, then, then you're on the right, uh, right path. And so, so what we're doing is basically using a bigger sensor, but a lens that's kind of uh, strange in the sense that it smushes the image. So our, our images that come out of the lens or on the sensor, the way they land on the sensor, they're kind of squished and deformed. And we fix them later with a neural network. And then you say, okay, why squish them? Why not just make them regular? And the only way to fit inside a phone, you know, phone is thin and they're going to stay thin. They're not going to become a bigger, right. they go in our pockets. Right. Um, you, you have to switch them and it, you have to squish it in a way that you still collect the more light. Otherwise it's a waste of time to do this. 
right. and in a way that you can recover, you know, all the extra resolution that you're targeting, resolution yes. and and photon light. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so our architecture kind of evolves towards that. You know, it started oh. in that brainstorm, oh, but we did, um, you know, lots of different generations of prototyping and stuff, and um, they're all very similar in their fundamental concept, but. Um, what, what's what's common to all of them is that they, for, for a given thickness of a phone or a camera on the phone, we're able to capture a ton more light, so more photons, more information, yeah, and that seeds the neural network. Um, and then the neural network takes that and enhances even more. So we're able to capture really crazy uh, level of detail when you take pictures. I see. This makes sense. So basically what's going on in the whole stack is basically you have a a like snubbed or like shortened lens relative to what it would normally need to be, which is delivering this smushed kind of image, as you're saying to the sensor, you've got a beefier sensor and then you, and then you get to have like beefier neural nets on the back end that undo the smushing as if you had like the right length of lens kind of for that. And then they also are doing all this gnarly post-processing afterwards on top of it. Really cool. That makes, that makes a lot of sense actually. So that's the, the advancement is you're you're letting us take big step forwards with the overall camera quality without needing to have the scale of gear you would normally have. Because like, yeah, these professionals, I mean, that's what gets gnarlier and gnarlier, right, is the lenses. Like the lenses are intense, right? Like if you look, go look at like a, a serious sporting event or something, for example, right, these people have like really gnarly lenses, huge like the weight of the glass is really significant, right? Like it's huge. So this is really cool. What is just, just like one quick technical point. What does the smushing actually mean? Like what's actually, is that what's the technical sort of like at a high level, what's happening there? It's interesting. So, so the lenses and the, the idea is not totally new. We didn't, you know, invent that. So it actually was invented in, um, in the, in the, with the context of photography or imaging or invented in Hollywood. Many years ago, mm. uh, you know, in Hollywood, they started uh, filming uh, videos on film. And when they started building these cinemas, you know, kind of like you have today, the screen was always wide, right? Um, and in order to capture images that are wide without changing the whole ecosystem of, you know, making a wide film and wide uh, mm. film feeder and all that, they just added what is called an anamorphic lens on top of the cameras that you know, mm. the acting cameras and what those anamorphic things did they actually squeeze in more horizontal field of view right and then when you went to the cinema to see the movie they would uh, project it on the wall with with the inverse anamorphic lens so it was unsqueezing uh, yes so yes, that allowed yes. them like with the you know with the like almost a square that wasn't exact square but let, let's if simplify things with the square yeah. piece of film to get a wide format um uh, image or video stream of images. Gotcha. So they use that, but those are like, you know, super expensive. By the way, they still use them today for different reasons. And now you can build a sensor, which is wide. Um, they still use them today because the um, folks making videos in Hollywood, they like the look of these lenses. So they have like, a, the usually the background blur is kind of elliptical and they have mm-hmm. these weird, nice flares. Uh, um, and also the, when you focus in on objects, they, they like how that focusing happens yeah. with, with different in X and Y. That makes um, sense. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see what you're saying. It's almost so, like so, a fish eye kind of, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, if you look at nature, 
Uh, yeah, we humans have, you know, round, uh, round right. cupules. But if you look right. at, you know, deer, goat, cats, you know, yeah. bark cats, tigers, lions, they don't have a symmetrical lens. And so like, why, why stick to symmetry? You know, the phone is so limited in one dimension. Mm. And basically what the phone makers are doing now, or almost all the cameras, they're limiting the size of the camera because they want to stick to a circle, right? Yes. The aperture. But there's no reason to stick to a circle just because, mm -hmm. you know, it's convenient that people have been doing it for 200 years. It doesn't mean right. it has to be that way, right? So um, we have a, a future where we have like a, a terrifying like bobcat eye like lens or whatever on the camera that's like... <laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining these three like, where, you know, that could be... You know, you you end up wasted late at night and turn your camera around. You could end oh, up yeah. with a heart attack, like, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You got a three-eyed like mutant thing coming at you. Um, okay, so you guys, you guys have been at this a few years now. Uh, where where are you at, and like, what's next? When do you foresee like really productionizing this? Yeah. So so we first we build this kind of a tabletop prototypes, I mean, not in the garage, but in the house, in the office, um, just to be able to, you know, test algorithm ideas, right? Because it's, it's, everything's an idea until you can test it. So we built this tabletop thing with mostly off the shelf components, some custom components, but everything was kind of cheap and fast, you know, that you order and you get it within a few weeks, you build it, it's kind of big, but it does, it's not something you can demonstrate to show anyone, it's more internal to kind of prove to ourselves that the idea works, but also to start developing some algorithms and kind of explore the space. So we built that. It worked great. Um, it actually created nice images, but it wasn't very mobile. It was on a table. Uh, and then we said, okay, next step, we need to build something that's uh, kind of more uh, closer to the form factor. So we built something that was smaller. It was kind of, I'm just looking, kind of like the camera itself was kind of like this size, still a little bit too big for, for, for phones. And it was connected with cables to a PC computer. So all the software was running on PC. Um, but that was nice because it had cables, but you could still hold it in your hand and you know, do demos and stuff. Um, and the image quality from that thing was, was of course a little bit better than the, the previous generation. Um, and then it allowed us to actually work on development, like capture images. Cause you know, when you do AI, you need to collect tons of data for training purposes. Um, so we started collecting a lot of images, um, and, and using that for, uh, training the neural networks. Um. But it was still a temporary thing that the next phase was to build something that's closer in size to what we would have in a smartphone. Because if, if you go with, you know, something like this to a smartphone makers as a school technology, you know, this goes into here. So, uh, yeah, call me back when it does go into there. Right. Right. So we said, let's build something that's really close to the right size of the actual product. Not exactly, but, you know, close mm. enough. Mm. And let's also run all our algorithm and do development only on Android, on smartphone mm. and not uh, waste time on PC because the porting and all that takes a lot of time. Yeah. Right. So, so we, so we did that kind of, uh, migrated and, and had to write lots of code for, um, I'm saying Android, the actual chip is, is Snapdragon. It's made by Qualcomm. Right. Um, uses, you know, we use a lot of the GPU, so it's open CL uh, language. Mm -hmm. Um, there's tons of compute going on there. And you have to accelerate it. If you just write code and put it on device, it's going to take like, you know, a day for each image. So there's lots of acceleration going on. Um, so we did that. And then we had like, still have kind of these prototype, which are 
they look like a phone, but the camera's not inside the phone. It's kind of like on the case of the phone. Uh, right. And we 3 d printed a, a phone case, so it's actually one piece. You can hold oh, it, cool, take cool, pictures. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of like a phone experience. The processing is on the phone. The lens is the right size. Um, and that, that's been going on the last year. We have different generations of this and they're like getting, uh, better, you know, you have to redo the lens. Uh, Wait, so this is a cool, this is a cool hack. I want to make sure I understand. So it's, so you basically, you have a case, a phone case, lenses on the case, and then you have a phone app for the phone. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. That's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. nice. I like yeah, that. Yeah. So that's the best way to demo this because right, it's on totally. a phone, phone experience, you know, totally. it's handheld. So you have to deal with all the motion and auto yep. movements and all yep. that stuff. Cool. Um, it, and yeah, that, that's what we have. We have a few generations of these already. Um, our next uh, critical milestone. So, so all these uh, prototypes that we have now that I just described, the lenses are all made by more traditional methods. So they're not mass produced. You cannot make millions of those tomorrow. Yeah, you could, but it would cost a ton of money. It's not. You're saying they're made by non-traditional methods? No, no, tr like more traditional methods and not oh. methods that are suitable for high volume, right? It's oh. low, let's call it low volume manufacturing. Yes. You, you cannot scale it. It's not that you go to the same supplier and say, oh, make me 10 million because, you know, whatever, Xiaomi wants to buy 10 million. So you, you, have, you have a lens design that you take to a, some kind of a supplier that makes these things. Yeah, yeah, kind of built a print thing, but it's only good for low volume. If you want to yes. sell this to the smartphone industry, you need to work with the folks that make these components for smartphones, right? Right. And these are just different companies. Also, it's different materials, different way of, they usually mold it. They do injection mm. molding mm. as opposed to polishing because the injection molding is much faster. Yeah. And so, so the next step, and that's exactly what we're working on now, is basically building same prototypes that we have now with same, their quality is good. Uh, they, they, they work amazing, but we want to have the, that quality come out of a, a lens or Let's say a system that's made by production methods that are, you know, you can do millions of them tomorrow. Right. It also means different vendors. So we partner with a few of these companies. They're all multi-billion, you're a huge company. And most of them are in, you know, Taiwan, Korea, China. I was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah and, and they supply to all the phone makers, basically. Um, so that's our next milestone. We, we hope kind of by end of Q1, uh, to have the first, uh, samples that are, um, Made the, by the mass yeah. production material. Are you, um, so with the first, the set of the first, uh, companies, the, the mate for the first like prototype lenses, are those also all in, in basically like China, Taiwan, Korea kind of place? Yeah. So, so the, so it's a kind of a thing where you really wouldn't have been able to do a startup like this at all without being like a pretty deep domain expert in terms of like just the supply chain of all this shit, I'm assuming, right? It would be probably hard to figure out, or, or is it not hard to figure out? Like, I don't know. It's no, it's hard. It's so it goes like that. So when you design lenses or optics mm -hmm. for smartphones, it's totally different than when you design lenses for defense or anything that's low volume. Right. Um, and there's no companies, for example, in the U.S., no, no one that can manufacture even samples of that. Nobody knows right. how to do it here. So right. it's purely an Asia. Uh, from a technical standpoint, you know, I was lucky enough to have experience with that in my previous uh, startup and company before. But if you just hire an optical engineer here, it's very unlikely that they will have that proper experience. Right. Because most of these guys are in Taiwan and China. 
right? Right. And they will already work for these companies and you're probably not going to find them on LinkedIn or anything. Right, so right, right. really hard. So, so we're a little, in that sense, we're lucky. Right. Uh, we also, uh, intensely knowing that, you know, the business side of, of things with these companies is also super important. Uh, so we hire, hire the VB, uh, is there guy that is from that industry, um, uh, same industry. So he was, uh, you know, at LG, Inotech, which is the company that makes all the camera modules for iPhone, for example, mm-hmm. you know, the last 10, 15 years, ever since the first iPhone camera. Um, so he's, you know, deeply connected. Um, I have lots of connections in, in those manufacturing facilities, manufacturing companies. Um, I think that helps. I think without that, we would be like, we wouldn't even know who to talk to. Like, what yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to prototype. You wouldn't be able to think yeah, about the differences. Of, like, I, I don't know how it will work. Probably yeah. Work. It wouldn't work. And I mean, you're having to be clever about thinking about how you prototype stuff. And then when you go to production and you're only, it sounds like you're only getting really two big steps in per suppliers. It's not like there's tons and tons of iteration all over the place, really with different. Yeah. And, 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 it, and it also extends to the, you know, the software side of thing, the algorithms, yeah. you know, there's tons of software engineers in Silicon Valley, but very few that actually roll low level algorithms for camera processing. Right. Uh, there, there's very few, and most of them, I would say, probably are at Apple. There's a few at, at Google, mm. and that's pretty much it. Um, that the rest, yeah. I mean, Samsung has some, and in China, there's a few, but it, it's yeah. a very, really, really small on the street. It's a small and world. We're lucky to have, you know, so so Tom and uh, Fabio, our chief scientist, he worked with me and Tom at Apple. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, tons of experience building from the very first software features that existed on iPhone, uh, you know, the, 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 the folks that actually wrote that code are, are here. Right. So it's like, it, it's, it's like a, you know, grouping of uh, very different people, but all have the like super, super, uh, hands-on experience with respect to smartphone photography, right. uh, for, you know, from the biz dev optics, mechanics, uh, algorithm and, you know, software. So you guys really know what you're doing, you know, in terms of really having the right pedigree and background for this, obviously. And I guess I should have disclosed at the beginning, I invested in you guys. So that's probably, I should have, I probably should have said that, um, you know, about, about one of the other, uh, one of the other guys a while ago as well. I should probably disclose that when I'm doing these in case I've invested in, in it already. Um, but that was like a big, you know, the, there was many reasons, but the, the team is definitely a huge, huge part of it. Um. But you guys still, in any event, are an early stage startup. So you've definitely screwed some stuff up because we all do. So what what has been, do you think so far, like your biggest fail as a CEO of this thing that, and like, as you reflect on it, what do you think you learned from it? Yeah, good point. So yeah, obviously, especially in the last, you know, three years, the whole world is kind of uh, screwed up in a way. Yes. Um, it's not necessarily bad. It's just everything is weird and you have to navigate. So... One thing that I would say we screwed up is when we started, when, so we did the seed round and immediately after that, we said, you know, the market was so good before COVID was, um, started, there was interest from, uh, people that even randomly, you know, send me messages through LinkedIn that they want to invest. So I said, you know what, you know, if we get a decent valuation, you can just quickly, we don't have to burn that pre-seed and just quickly do like a big seed round and. and yeah people, which would, would have been great. Um, and, and I started talking to investors and I, I think within a week, like secured about 8 million. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, we didn't put it on paper, right? Mm. 
because I was looking for a little bit more. I think my target was around 12 or something, build this plan. Mm. Um, and I was looking for one or, one or two more investors and then COVID hit. Mm. It was like literally out of the blue, right? And, and yeah. end of March, uh, 2020, you know, I remember they closed the schools and from there on, it was like a quick slow down. Right. And yeah. these two, so it was two investors, 8 million was a five and a three. Yeah. These two, uh, one was a VC, one was strategic. They told me, oh, we're saving the money for, you know, looks like there's a rainy day coming. A lot of people um, froze everything, I remember. Yeah, exactly. So I said, yeah, you know, it's fine, not gonna, and then stop talking to investors. I'm just saying if I, if I structured in a way that, you know, because these guys were open to a safe, if we just do a safe at the time, uh, we probably have enough, uh, you know, budget to do what we needed immediately and not have to, yeah. it goes to the other a thing that I wanted to say, like things we kind of failed at and it's all related and related to money and hiring. So that, that the thing is hiring. Um, so even after we did the seed round last, so about a year and a half ago in the summer, so we had money in the bag, we had budget. We, we tried hiring people. We did like really serious interview process. We built this flow. How do we find the right people that are both you know, smart, but also suitable for startup because it doesn't always go together. Um, and we, it was really hard. We found a few. We couldn't get them to, to join. It was really mm -hmm. hard getting people to sign, um, because you know, Apple and uh, Google and Facebook and whatever is a bunch of companies, medium sized startup, they were just throwing money at people. So much. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, when AI is come join us. You know? Oh, right. So uh, we we're competing with like much higher salaries and, uh, we tried to emphasize, you know, the, that the, you're doing actual work. You're going to learn from like experts from this industry yeah, and. Yeah. Have fun because we're having all we're having fun all the yeah. time in the office. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, for some people, that the actual bottom line numbers salary uh, makes a difference. So right, that was hard, and we did. You know, we did go up a little bit, and then we said, um, you know, if if somebody wants to come here just for the high salary, we probably don't want them anyways, right? Right. We want people that are passionate about what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was kind of a, let's say, I, I'm saying it fairly, we did end up hiring, but it just took much longer than expected. Yeah. But I'm not sure that's a, a fail. I mean, we, I remember we talked about that at the time and I'm of the same opinion where you guys netted out. It's like, I don't think it makes sense for startups to chase on base comp and people need to make, be willing to like make that trade off. And like, at the end of the day, what I always say is, it's not even about the equity and this cash versus upside thing, which is obviously like the core economic argument that you always hear about startups. But the only because you don't know what's going to happen with the equity because it's by definition very uncertain. And so I'm not going to sit here and sell you this like rosy forward picture of economics with with my highly uncertain startup. Like I, I mean, I did do that when I was really younger and starting out, but they later realized. That's kind of shitty. You shouldn't really sell people that. Like the better thing that you can actually count on is the learning experience, right? Like you're going to have, by nature, way more responsibility and ownership to do much more faster than you ever would inside a bigger company. And so like if you're a very self-motivated person who has like sustained self-driven productivity, focus, et cetera, and a, and a good like learning trajectory, you know, you can really grow your career like way faster. And if you do later go back to a bigger company through an acquisition or otherwise, 
you know, you can pop up to a way higher role way faster. And like, that's, that's something you can pretty much guarantee if you're working with real professionals like you guys, right? And I think, so, so it's kind of like the person who's the best fit for the startup is very focused on like rapid career growth and like uh, their upward trajectory and learning and stuff. And like, yes, there's a big upside economic opportunity, but this is something you can really count on. And people who aren't really looking for that shouldn't really be looking in the startup ecosystem. That's my opinion. And I think we should screen people out who don't have that focus. So, um, okay. So moving on from this, like what, um, okay. We talked about the heart, the, the people challenges. We talked about COVID messing that up. Like has COVID in the recent downturn affected you otherwise, besides the sort of like kick in the pants you got at the beginning of COVID? So not too much. I think that this, the other COVID related thing, which is still going on is, is China specifically, you know, because China is still kind of, you know behaving like COVID just started yesterday. Right. Uh, and you guys have so much there. We we have we have lots of partners there. So what we're doing to get by so first of all, we're doing, you know, Zoom calls and stuff. I mean, yeah. everybody is aware that there's that we have to. Mm -hmm. Uh normal I think in normal days we would probably travel once a month or two months and, and have like a you know concentrated meetings and get things done faster. Uh we did have some of the folks from China come here. So they could come here. You know, there's no quarantine, nothing just come and so we did have some some visitors here from the Chinese companies that we work with. And yeah. I think that was good. It's not that it it helps you on a technical level, it's just you know, when you see a person and build this relationship and it, it just makes things more real, more concrete for them and yes. for us. Mm -hmm. Um it helps. So you, I'm not saying you need to, you know be there all the time, but it's nice to have once in a while face, face definitely. Meeting. Yeah, definitely. So that was a little bit of a challenge, but I think it's, it's, it's getting better and we kind of managed to, uh, shuffle around with the zoom calls and Google meets. Whatever. So tell me while we're on this topic, um, like about this, like Len, like this camera tech supply chain and the economic stack. And like, I think we've talked about like how most of it um, and, and this is the, is this the glass and this, I'm assuming the sensors and hardware too, like pretty much everything is coming from Asia probably, right? So you have this bunch of stack of stuff over in Asia, and then you have some economic stack that like goes together with that, right? Like how, give us a quick like economic breakdown, like how much of the cost of a smartphone is in this camera stack? Um, and what does it look like? you know, how many different players are involved in it and stuff. And what are your, because that basically means that your company comes down to like your core tech, which is a lot of it is software. And then your, your hardware designs combined with pretty like significant number of BD deals with a pretty small number of players. It sounds like. Yeah. So, so the industry is like that. So, you know, you have the big, um, filmmakers, there's a little bit more than most people think. You know, because here in the U.S. we have like Apple, Samsung, Google. Uh, Google is actually very small in terms of volume. Right. Yeah. Really, really small. So, so you have Apple, Samsung, and then you have lots of companies in China like Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, mm -hmm. Transcom, uh, a, a few others, Lenovo. Uh, they're they're all big. They're not like in volume. They're you know some of them are bigger than Apple mm -hmm. and Samsung. Um, in volume, not all the volume they ship is flagship. They also have like mid tier phones, mm -hmm. but even their flagship, they sell, um, really, really high volume. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so that's the, let's say cu customers or phone makers. Is it, are they selling them all within China or other places in the world? No, they're saying that, that, yeah, if you go to Europe, I was in Europe a few weeks ago, 
commercials for Oppo phones all over the place and the subway in Paris, you know, it's just here in the U.S. because they're banned. You don't, you don't see them, right? So they're just banned. They're just straight up banned. That's they're banned. You can probably get them on eBay or something. I, I don't know, but I don't see them. And like you go to Best Buy or these shops, you don't see any Xiaomi phones or. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have a few of them here because we, we got them for testing and comparison. Yeah. They're pretty impressive uh, phones. So it's kind so of a shame. They just pushed all the spyware to TikTok anyways, so it's not like it's really <laughs> it, working. They did run with the iPhone also, yeah. As well, left the front <laughs> right? So, okay, so that, so, and how much of the dollar value of a phone is in this camera stack, you think? Like, yeah, so that depends a lot. On the flagship phones, um, yeah, you know, the good phones, phone. let's just say the good, the, the good phones, which are yeah. compar- comparable to, you know, the Apple and Samsung, yeah. but you have similar models from Xiaomi and Oppo and all these companies, yeah. um, one, one plus Vivo, there's lots of companies in China, uh, they all have high end phones. So the bond for the camera, I would say is roughly between say $40 on the low side. And there was a, a specific model, I think last year that the estimates were like above $200 for the bomb of the camera. Wow. So that's, that's great. That's basically a camera with a little bit of phone on it, not the opposite. And nope, nobody really knows what's the price on the, you know, the iPhone or Samsung, but there's lots of these uh, market reports that analyze the actual components and their yeah, size and all that. Yeah. And they're typically between 50 and $80, something like that. Depending what's which the model. In, what's the all in cost of these things? So. You mean like the whole bomb of the phone oh, or? Yeah, for like a full, a full, you know. So the phones product. I think are around 350, 400. So we're talking so about like a quarter of the price per, right. per camera. Yeah. The other quarter goes to the display and then you have all the other, like the chip and wow. all the batteries and stuff. Wow. Yeah. So it's a lot. So it's a yeah. lot. It's a lot. But just, just to kind of get some rough feeling, I mean, you, you can do some math, but if you multiply that by the number of phones, uh, that are sold every year. just the, the cameras itself as a component, that business is about 60 billion, uh, 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 dollars a year, just yeah. the, mo- the module themselves. Right. Um, yeah. so that, that, that's a lot of money. It's a pretty big uh, business. Of course it, it's, you know, distributed between all the, if there, there's a bunch of same, same way you have, uh, suppliers for everything. And here you also have, you know, supplier, different suppliers for the set, for the sensor, different supplier for the lens, for the right. motor. But are you guys what? trying to, are you guys trying to sell this as a, as a basically like a, a bundle? So. Because you kind of have to, right? Because of the way. We are. Moving. We need to enable these manufacturers to be able to make cameras based on our technology. Right. They make it and we uh, sell the actual software for a specific camera module to a smartphone maker. So let's say. Bradford, you want to make a phone, I'm going to tell you, okay, for what, what, what do you want the spec to be? You know, you want to use that sensor from Sony and mm. you know, that lens, that field of view, we put together a spec, we, we designed the, the camera together with your supplier. Mm. So we're not going to ask you to change your supplier. We're going to work with your supplier. He's going to sell it directly to you. And we're going to sell you the software that is going to make that camera work on your phone. But, but it's like a one-time, um, or not one-time, one-year cycle because every year you know the phone makers they have a new camera maybe some some year they want to reuse the last year's models but the agreement is based on a camera model so every time they want to change it we have to renegotiate yep um yeah and we provide them with the software which includes in there it's basically a library that runs a bunch of software but also the neural network 
And right. it's optimized for a specific chip that they use. Typically, it would be a, snap, a Qualcomm Snapdragon. Yeah, on the high-end phones. So um, they're still, so they still are doing deals with the hardware suppliers directly. Exactly. Here, yeah. But, they, but these guys are working. Or you're kind of trying to work off specs that they already have, or have some tweaked ones, so that's like not too difficult for them. So, so they can basically <laughs> make these parts. They're then doing deals with the the camera companies direct, or with the with the uh, with the phone the companies phone. directly. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. And we don't want to get in between them because. The, the size of that business is all billion dollars. They don't want a little startup, you know, in between. Being in the middle, brokering it. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, they monitor for yields and stuff. We don't want to be in between. Yeah, right. That makes sense. It, it would be uh, a lot for you guys to try to roll up, right? Yeah. So you, um, you can say we're kind of selling them software, but they need to buy a specific hardware for that software to work. It's like the spec. It's like a spec with software, right? Like yeah, yeah. they kind of need the, to to have the whole spec for it. Yeah, that makes yeah, complete exactly. sense. Okay. And now um you guys are um this dual hardware and software company kind of. Does it make even though you guys don't make the hardware yourselves, do you find that it makes it harder for people to like get you in tech and like for VCs cuz I know a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with hardware. A lot of VCs and other people get really confused about it or they have, you know, very naive pattern matching where it's like, fuck this, I'm not going to work with anyone who touches hardware and it takes forever and there's all this extra risk. Like, do you guys get a lot of issues with that? How do you navigate that? So, yeah, we haven't recently talked to investors, but when we did our seed run and we talked to a few, we did get this, uh, let's say, a lot of questions and we don't yeah. fall into any of the, like, standard boxes that they have. Because, mm. you know, when we start to tell our story and we say, yeah, you build this special lens and blah, blah, blah. So, oh, you're a hardware company. How are you going to manufacture a hundred million units? That, no, no, we're not manufacturing. We're not going to manufacture anything. You know, we partner with the existing companies that already make a hundred billion units a month. So it, it, it's kind of hard to explain. But I think if somebody is, is open-minded to listen, they get it. So we're not a hardware company. We're not our, like our ability to... To, to ship or ability to grow is not dependent on factories and real estate and workers right. and all that. You know, right. so so in that sense, we, like the fear from building hardware, I get that. Um, there is, you know, challenges if you actually want to build and sell it yourself. Uh, we don't have these things. We just need to properly explain it to people that, you know, the only component that we actually deliver is a piece of software to, to the smartphone makers. They buy all the rest from, you know, from their own supply chain. Right. We just work with them to help them make it, but we don't actually uh, control the volume. We don't have to, you know, physically be there and pack it and ship it and all that. Awesome. Got it. So I have just one more question, which is kind of like a, the, I try to save them these kind of speculative ones for the end. So um, if you guys build this into a big independent business, um, I know we've talked in the very beginning about how there's like other markets, right? Like drones and other things like how important that is to you. Do you think about it at all? Is it like super speculative where like it doesn't, you know, the phone market is so big, you just need to do this and you might never even get to that. Like, how do you look at these other, like, you know, beyond phone applications? So we, we're thinking about them, but I, the, the, the main reason we're, we're not pursuing it, uh, at all at the moment. Is like you said, the phone market so big that even if we get like a tiny phone maker in China to put this technology only in a tiny, you know, percentage of their phone, like the flagship phone, and even if they pay us, you know, uh, 
uh, a fraction of what we asked them to pay us, it's still tons of money, right? Mm. So in terms of business, it's just, if, if we manage to get into phones, it's, it's hard not to make good money from it. Yeah. Um, just because the numbers are crazy, the number of phones sold every year, then, and also the cost of the phones, you know, they, these phones are all a thousand bucks and up. So yeah. when they have to pay a few single dollars for enabling a better camera, they do it. There's, there's no yeah. question. Uh, and we started negotiating with them. It, the, the price is not an issue at all. Right. And then you multiply these numbers by, you know, 30 million, 40 million, which is what they sell their flagship phones every year. Right. Right. Uh, and this is just like the small vendors. I'm not talking about the big ones like right. Xiaomi and Oppo. Right. And right. Uh, so, so the numbers are just so high that it doesn't make sense purely to go into other uh, directions. I'm not and saying this is what they're all trying to pitch too, right? Like this is when they go up and market, say, hey, here's our new yeah, camera. It's they're perfect, always, right? It's like here's they're the, camera. the camera, right? If you see yeah, an Apple right. event or a Xiaomi event or something, they're talking like 50% of the time about the camera and then the, camera. About the battery and stuff. Right. Um, so, so yeah, we're, we're focused on that. We think it's a good market. We, we, you know, we see the traction also. We're talking to some of these guys that the traction is really good. They want we're super interested. They're willing to, you know, sponsor these developments, pay for them, whatever. So, yeah. so I think it will, will probably stay in that domain, but from a like technical point of view, there's a lot of benefits of using, uh, this kind of almost similar technology, but it's the same approach for uh, drones, for automotive, for different applications. Yeah. Um, and it just opens up lots of new things. Of course, if you talk about each one separately, you know, drone is still not a huge market. Automotive right. is big, but it takes forever to get in an actual right. uh, product. So I'm also just one, I'm also just wondering if these are, you know, because the phone is kind of the leading and biggest market, isn't it the case that some of these other markets are are kind of just trying to repurpose what was already done for the phones. Like, why would you go and try to make a totally different lens stack for your drone or your car? Like, aren't you just going to try to use the same stuff basically? The, yeah, there's tons of reuse. So I think like a lot of the medical advancement in the last years, it's thanks to the smartphone industry. Totally. For example, yeah. Same for drones, by the way, they use same, you know, accelerometers and uh, yeah, right. Component. Uh, it, totally. Yeah. Some of the lenses are also reused in different, uh, products. Automotive is a little trickier because, you know, they have to withstand like higher G forces and temperatures and stuff. Mm. Uh, but the sensor technology and, you know, all these, uh, cars, Tesla's, whatever, they have lots of cameras. It's, it's the same sensor technology that's, that was developed for phones. They use mm. different part numbers, different sensors, but the technology for making them is, is, has evolved thanks to smartphone. Right. That makes sense. So yeah. basically like whatever's happening for the phone is kind of the leading edge anyways. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Awesome. I think that's good. We're giving you two minutes here to get ready for your hard stop. So we got through everything and okay, I think it was yeah, really it was great. awesome. Happy to talk to you, Bradford. Yeah. Good I, think it was really, I think it was really cool. It was really cool to unpack some of the stuff that even I didn't really know that much in depth. So I think people will really love this. Okay, yeah. next time you're around, come in for a coffee and a demo. Oh, definitely. I can't wait to come see it. Yeah, like I can. Is, is, the, is the eye thing real? Is that is it kind of have the eye thing going on already? It, it's real, but it's not spooky. Okay. It's All right. It looks good. Okay, awesome. All right, man. Good stuff. Bye, Bradford. Thanks. Have